From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line. Today's Open Line is recorded, so no calls, please. If you'd like to send us an email for a future show, the address is openline at EWTN.com. Well, a tremendous Friday to each and every one of you. Thanks so much for tuning in to EWTN's Open Line. This is a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Friday with our very own Vice President of Theology, Mr. Colin Donovan, so we won't be taking your phone calls today. But if you would like to be part of a future mailbag show, send us an email. The email address is openline at EWTN.com. That's openline, all one word, at EWTN.com. I'm Jack Williams, Michael McCall, producing the program, and our host as he is every Friday, Mr. Colin Donovan. And Colin, one of the great joys among the many joys associated with working here at EWTN is that as we enter the seasons of Advent and Lent, um, the network provides an opportunity for the employees to make a retreat entering into those holy seasons, which is quite a blessing for us. And it's an important thing. It's a canonical thing. You know, Holy Mother Church finds it so important that she requires her ordained ministers to annually uh, avail themselves of such a thing. So just talk a little bit about uh, retreats in general and why the church holds them in such high regard. Right. It's uh, The example, of course, is our Lord himself who went off into the desert, a retreat, if you will, for 40 days. Uh, and we have many examples of that in, in the Old Testament, for example, the prophets, and certainly in the history of the church. And as you noted, the church requires it canonically for priests, religious, and other and others who live avowed lives. Uh, and so it, it's it's useful for getting a sense of our bearings. Uh, there is certainly a great history of retreats in the church. We can think of the Anation Exercises of the Jesuits, a 30-day retreat, you know, which is sort of the, the mother of all retreats from that sense in terms of really you know, learning about yourselves and St. Ignatius' own experience, you know, where he switched from a worldly attitude to, uh, to, to God uh, is certainly an example of that. And so any retreat, the Advent season itself, Lent, uh, any of those kinds of circumstances are opportunities that the Church gives us to right the ship, uh, to get ourselves back on course, you know, to get our bearings in, in, in other terms, uh, and to make sure that looking at ourselves, we are working on those things which are obstacles to God. And so there are different ways of doing that. You can do the 30-day retreat or typically the many weekend retreats now, like a Thursday through Sunday or something like that is quite common. Uh, you can do retreats out of a book just by setting the time time aside yourself and using uh, a book for doing a retreat and all having basically the same purpose and examination of ourselves and our deficiencies in light of the perfect example of our Lord and how to bridge that gap, which is usually can be a little gap or a bigger gap or a huge gap. But however big it is, it needs to be bridged and the retreat gives us a a chance to sort of link the pontoons together and get across that chasm. And hopefully we'll provide a little mini 55-minute retreat for those of you that are listening to us (laughs) today. Let's kick things off here with an email from Kyle. When we say, Our Father, do we hold hands? During RCIA, I was told we did and have for years. 
Here recently, we were informed we are not to hold hands or extend our hands out toward the altar. This is reserved for the priest only. Can you talk about this? Sure. Um, the rubrics, now the context of RCIA, is, I think the question is a little bit confused because it sort of confuses RCIA with the Mass. Um, you can hold hands all you want in the RCIA. I'm not sure that <laughs> what what that will do to your progress in it, but uh, uh, you're free to do that, uh, whether you're saying the Our Father or, or not. Hopefully it's your spouse. In terms of the liturgy, the Church establishes the rubrics primarily for the clergy. What the priest does, for example, it tells him when he, you know, parts his hands, when what he does with the elements of the, uh, and all the different steps. The rubrics uh, cover those, and the general instruction of the Roman Missal uh, elaborates on, on all of that point. The laity are given some basic things. We're told when we stand up, we're told when we sit down, we're not told how we hold our hands, you know, uh, or, or any of those things. But we do learn from example, and that's not a bad thing. So there are things that have come into the liturgy, the use of the laity by the liturgy, for example, that are not, are not prescribed by uh, the rubrics, uh, such as the beating of the breast does actually mention that. But the signing of one yourself at the gospel is an imitation of what the clergy does, and it's a good one, and you can, you know, make up your own uh, little prayer, you know, the Lord be on my mind and on my lips and in my heart, so I might worthily receive the gospel of Christ, or... What you do in a private piety, as opposed to out loud, surrounded by your neighbors, uh, both by posture and gesture and prayer, uh, is up to you. It's within your own personal authority. The holding of the hands is not part of what the Church asks us to do. In fact, uh, about 20 or so years ago, when Cardinal Lorenz was responsible for the Congregation for uh, Discipline of the Sacraments, he specifically noted that, no, it's not appropriate. The fraternal gesture is a sign of peace at this time in the Mass, whereas the, uh, the holding of hands uh, or even the Oran's posture is, uh, is for the priest. And in fact, if the lady were doing it in those days, the deacon wasn't doing it because he was bound by the rubrics and wouldn't be. So now you have the priest and the lady and the deacon doing nothing. Uh, the U.S. bishops thought for a while that maybe they would get a indult from the Holy See to uh, do this. They even encouraged it in a pastoral document on the Mass, but nothing ever really came beyond that. So, rubrically, it's not prescribed. There's no obligation. It's done in some places. Whether that's a good or a bad idea, I tend to think that it diminishes the role of the, of the, the sign of peace. Uh, as uh, Cardinal Lorenzo said back in the, the 90s. Uh, Albert writes in, you'll like this one, I know it's speculative theology, but do you think that there is sex in heaven after the final judgment when our bodies and souls are united? Now, I think the answer is no, because the reason for sex is procreation of children, and Jesus did say that nobody would be married in heaven. We're not Mormons. But then I think we will eat food in heaven, since we're in heaven and we don't need nourishment for our bodies since they are exalted. So even though we will have our bodies again, we, uh, we will not, we will not, uh, well, anyway. We got the basic yeah, idea. This, yeah, this, I can't even, I can't even figure out this last sentence. sentence. <laughs> yeah, um, uh, 
I think it would be highly speculative based on the comments of Jesus to suggest that because it's such a specific sign attached to, uh, to marriage. So in the church, although you recognize, we recognize, as Jesus did, that you know, a, a woman could have several husbands because their husbands die. Well, who is her husband? Uh, that would complicate the question. Uh, so I think the answer to that is no, um, and I think it sort of diminishes the value of what heaven is about, you know, to think that, well, I can look forward to that in heaven. This is, in fact, the part, uh, a viewpoint of, of one of the world religions, that heaven is basically a, a sexual feast and a feast of the, of the senses. That is not at all what heaven is. In heaven, we, the, the, our, we will have a flood of joy from the presence of God that will, will not require any other satisfaction although we will accidentally have the satisfaction of sharing that with our friends, our neighbors, our loved ones who, who are there with us, with the saints and the angels and so on, uh, I highly doubt that it will involve any uh, sexual sharing. And really, I think that this, the, the, the fact that the question would even be asked, you know, maybe or maybe not now that I think about it, but we do live in a, in a highly sexualized culture currently. Right, and we tend to think of that as being the epitome of happiness and joy. Uh, but the, yeah, the, uh, it's obvious that that isn't the case because it's so unsatisfying to so many that they seek it in multiple ways from multiple people. Uh, and in a rather what has become an extremely large phenomena of lack of monogamy, lack of premarital chastity, lack of marital chastity, lack of uh, consecrated chastity. I mean, we had a, just had a viral epidemic. There's an epidemic of not understanding the nature of human sexuality and the nature of the gift of oneself to another, as if sex is the only way that one does that. No, charity is the greatest way, and we will have with God and in God and with our neighbors, saints and angels in heaven, we will have the fullness of the greatest self-gift there is, the gift of ourself to them and their gift to us. Once again, this is a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Friday with our very own Vice President of Theology, Mr. Colin Donovan, so we won't be taking your calls today. But if you'd like to be part of a future mailbag edition, please just send us an email. That email address is openline at EWTN.com. That's open line, all one word, at EWTN.com. It's Open Line Friday with Colin Donovan. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Today's Open Line is recorded, so no calls, please. If you'd like to send us an email for a future show, the address is openline at EWTN.com. And this is a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Friday, but we do have some phone calls that were left over from a previous hour that we're going to take. So we head now to Des Moines, Iowa. Okabamariam is in Des Moines, Iowa, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Okabamariam, you are on with Colin Donovan. I thank you for taking my call. And my question is, uh, when I uh, read the scripture uh, the, on the Old Testament, uh, I see that 
our God sounds like more care, shows more care for the people of Israel, uh, and does not for the other people. Sometimes mm-hmm. help them in the battle to wipe their the people who don't believe in him. So how is that? Yeah, I mean, that you have to sort of go back to the beginning of the story, which is recounted in the book of Genesis, how God created mankind, um, and that mankind sinned and offended him. Uh, it fell into not only uh, moral, uh, great moral sin, murder, debauchery, and all the things uh, that are described, as well as being uh, the loss of faith in God. So we have this great breakdown of the human race to what in the church is called original sin, this original fault, which is once the grace of God was removed from mankind, we have the difficulty seeing the truth and and knowing the truth then doing the good, but easily overcome by our passions and so on. So this was all of mankind was guilty of this, and that included the Israelites. So the history of salvation is, you could say, God's plan of salvation is this program, <laughs> to use sort of a modern language, of how God with would start with the Israelites, and the Apostle Paul calls, speaks of the, the Torah, the law, the, the revelation that was given to the Israelites as being like a tutor. In other words, to train this portion of mankind, the, the people of Israel, the descendants of, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, in what is truly what is pleasing to God and what is good moral behavior. And so all of this would be ultimately in view of him sending his son, Jesus Christ, to actually redeem the world so that all the world may share the benefits of that knowledge uh, through grace, through the, uh, through the death of Christ on the cross and through the teaching of the church and so on. So when you look at it in that context, now you go back and you see that like a garden, God planted it, he was watering it, he was caring for it, and he was he built a wall around it. He had discouraged them completely from, you know, they would go after the idols. They would do all the things of the other nations. They would intermarry with, with pagans and uh, be led uh, down, the, you know, down the path to sin and evil doing that. So that he tried to discourage sometimes by the, the discipline, as, such as a parent would use with his child and sometimes by encouragement and the favors given to Israel. So it isn't that God hated the rest of mankind, but they have their free choice. The Israelites have their free choice. But he had to nurture this line in order to dispose at least this people to receive the Messiah, and therefore from that seed that this would spread throughout the world. And as we know, of course, Israel did not receive the Messiah, uh, all the early members of the church were, were Israelites, were descendants primarily of Judah and the tribes that were not dispersed in a previous uh, era of history in the 8th century B.C., uh, when the Babylonians carted many away from Jerusalem, and, and even before that the Assyrians carted away the ten tribes of the, of the, northern, the northern territories. Uh, but God working with what human choice provided, because we always have a choice in this. And so history proceeds, and it's not that God is hampered, but that he won't 
force us down any particular path. So he uses this, you know, enticement uh, as he enticed the Israel. He uses discipline. He they were punished for their uh, for their failures, and he protected them from those outside who would take them back to the evils which they left in becoming the children of God. So there's a rhyme and a reason to it. And it's it's not essentially unfair and unjust because those, those people, uh, the others, were people who themselves were living uh, lives of sin. They were continuing on in the ways which God had had punished mankind before regarding that kind of behavior. Uh, and so there was no injustice in that. Ultimately, he is the judge of every life, is he not? And he gets, he gets to reward and, and punish uh, according to uh, the fidelity uh, of each person who stands before him. So that is, that is the way to look at that, I think, that within the plan of salvation, God nurturing and watering and bringing Israel primarily for the fruit of Jesus Christ. Uh, as the fruit of that branch, the fruit of the of the um, of, of the branch of Jacob, of the tree of Jacob, um, and yes, along the way he had to nations had to be pushed out, nations had to be punished and to protect Israel, uh, but all in view of the salvation of all of mankind, uh, and that I think is the uh, the way to look at those kinds of questions. Again, a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Friday, so we won't be taking your phone calls today. Brand new offering hot off the presses for December from EWTN Publishing, the prayer book for tired parents, Practical Ways to Grow in Love of God and Get Your Family to Heaven by David and Debbie Cowden. The prayer book for tired parents includes relatable, real-life reflections on the struggles that parents with young children face, as well as heartwarming stories on how they can make you stronger and a better Catholic. This handy springboard to sanctity also includes inspiration from the lives of the saints who will intercede for you in your work as parents and appreciable and attainable ways to cultivate charity and grow in the love of God. That's the prayer book for tired parents, practical ways to grow in the love of God and get your family to heaven by David and Debbie Cowden. It's available at EWTNRC.com by Catholic Shop EWTNRC.com. Back to the mailbag we go. Lauren writes in, please explain the difference between the writing of Scripture inspired by the Holy Spirit and the testimony and writings of those saints and holy men and women whose lives and words obviously are witnesses to the world of a deep connection with our Lord. Examples abound, one being St. John Paul II's Theology of the Body. Sure. Well, everything falls into different categories, and the primary category is that of public revelation, which is on God's initiative. Uh, God, in revealing himself to Moses uh, and in revealing himself to us uh, in and through Jesus Christ, wanted to say certain things to us. And so to accomplish that, he inspired human authors who worked, as the Second Vatican Council taught and as other councils as well, that in their human freedom, without despoiling them of their freedom, without turning them simply into automatic hands, automatic writing, which the Church rejects as being a valid phenomena, 
He rather guides them in their freedom to write down all that is necessary and only that which is necessary of the story of salvation, which we talked about with respect to the caller, so that other future generations then would know what God has to say about himself. Because the things of God are realities beyond our own experience, and even the human experience of God is not God's experience of God, and only he can and reveal those deep truths about himself. And so the Trinitarian nature was essentially uh, not spoken, not revealed in any positive way during the whole of the time of the Old Covenant, uh, although it was certainly hinted at in different places, but not explicitly uh, spoken of, because that was reserved for the time of Jesus Christ. So public revelation, which the church determined what that is, the book, the Bible, did not come off a publisher's shelf into the hands of the Christian. You know, here's the Word of God. The church methodically over several centuries had a discernment regarding these apostolic writings, and that discernment constituted the canon of sacred scripture. And that canon is sacrosanct, is coming from Christ and those apostolic figures, such as the apostles and, uh, and Luke, who wasn't an apostle, but uh, an evangelist who wrote down based on conversations with Our Lady and also his traveling with Paul and so on, wrote down uh, what is uh, what the apostles were taught, or Mark, who uh, was likely sort of a secretary to St. Peter and wrote down the, uh, we get certainly get the impression that uh, Peter was a very simple person and Mark is the simplest gospel. It's sort of right to the point and tells the story in a, you know, uh, in a very clear, clear way. Um, and so that on the basis uh, of their experience of Christ, communicated in writing, that is a separate category. That's the category of divine revelation. Public revelation is the private exper- or private revelation is the private experience of the saints, uh, the mystic. And so the, the mystic is an individual who in their prayer life, as it is deep, deepened, uh, I think a, a good explanation is that they exhaust what, you know, their reading of Scripture, their reading of the saints, their contemplation, uh, uh, human contemplation of those truths can tell them. And so God intervenes to take them supernaturally to a deeper and more profound understanding of those things. And so it's, first of all, very personal to them. It has a subjective character to them. Uh, It's not intended for all. It's intended for them. But there are many things which the saints say, which the mystics say, or where God has given prophecies through mystics or through apparitions such as Fatima, uh, which are intended to a broader audience. But that's not often the case, or at least that's not the general case. The general case is for the the growth in prayer and growth in holiness of the individual uh, individual person. So private revelation accompanies private public revelation, but it has to be consistent with it, or the church says, no, that can't be from God. It contradicts what public revelation says, contradicts what the church affirms as the content and meaning of that revelation. That can't be from God. Or, yes, that's consistent with God. It's not sacred scripture, but is credibly understood to be 
you know, God inspiring this individual and them, you know, writing these things down. So it's useful. And there's a difference between necessary and useful. That would be uh, one explanation. And finally, there's theology, which is individual reflection. The theology of the body, of course, has a magisterial character to it as presented by John Paul II. And it can have a long-lasting character through the magisterium, but it can also simply be an expression of an individual theologian's own thinking and understanding of the matter. It's Open Line Friday with Colin Donovan. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Today's Open Line is recorded, so no calls, please. If you'd like to send us an email for a future show, the address is openline at EWTN.com. Again, a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Friday. We won't be taking your phone calls today. We were just uh, addressing questions sent in by Lauren, and you wanted to kind of put a bow on the theological portion of that answer. Right. And the the interesting thing is, of course, there are the unusual cases of the uh, theologians who become popes. Um, certainly John Paul II was more the philosopher who became pope. Pope Benedict would be the theologian who became pope. And we still have to, and he was very careful to distinguish between his theological writings and his magisterial writings. But obviously, sometimes what the is presents itself as a theological insight in the church is presented consistently by popes. They have embraced it, and there is merit to that, and we find all of these things in church documents. So the distinction I made earlier about public versus private revelation you can find in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraph 66 on public, 67 on private revelation, and in, uh, with regarding how the theology, Roman theology or papal theology, becomes magisterial theology, you can find that in Lumen Gentium, uh, in the Constitution on the, on the Church, uh, Lumen Gentium, the Dogmatic Constitution on the Church of the Second Vatican Council, paragraph 20, 24 and 5, where it talks about the progressive way in which theology develops and acquires magisterial weight. So that's sort of closer to public revelation than, say, private revelation is, because what the Church determines through councils and popes can become part of the deposit of the faith by an elaboration, by a theological development. And that's an important distinction uh, there as well. So we have all the, the Church's own words on these matters in the Catechism as well as in Lumen Gentium. Uh, we're developing a bit of a scriptural theme here, as Chris writes in. In Genesis and other early books of the Old Testament, there are many characters who lived for hundreds, almost a thousand years. How did the author consider years, quote unquote, in this? I know it's not a hundred. I know it's not a modern historical text, but it does especially mention hundreds of years of life, even bearing children at those ages. How should we understand the named ages in these texts? Sure. Um, I'm not sure that we can ever know with certainty. Uh, I think most people would say, well, we would at least know with certainty that, you know, they didn't live for almost a thousand years. Um, okay, I suppose that's a reasonable conclusion. Uh, but what other, what other basis could they have? Well, for example, you know, we're very exact. This is, we keep history in a very exact fashion. Uh, and so it troubles us when somebody gets a date wrong, you know, 
You know, if somebody said, well, Abraham Lincoln was assassinated in uh, 1873 count, or something Maybe Moses like that. just didn't count very well. <laughs> well, it's not that, but you look at you look at the the use of numbers in the Old Testament and even in the New, in the book of Revelation. Um, if you wish to say a very long time, a thousand years. So to, to make comparisons among historical figures with lengths of time uh, would have you know, a certain value, but did it have the value that we attribute to, you know, historical accounts? Because they didn't simply do, they simply didn't do history as we, as we do it. They do it through storytelling and passing on, as many uh, primitive cultures in some parts of the world even today do that. The other, the other questions are, yeah, I've seen several academic explanations of that, uh, but they're not really very satisfying. So, uh, I guess mine is as good as anybody's on that, and we'll in the end we'll don't know, but we can we can ask Methuselah and uh, and find out how long he actually lived in solar years. <laughs> uh, Vincent in Ireland says, "Is it okay for Catholics to attend SSPX masses, and if so, can it fulfill one's Sunday obligation?" I don't know of any reason why it wouldn't today, because uh, there is. A rapprochement, all not final and complete, between the society and and the Holy See. So I th- I think the answer to that question is yes. Um, and then each would judge. I think in today's context, each judge what what serves their needs best spiritually. But uh, the reconciliation is not complete. But sacramentally, the celebration of Mass, the uh, confessions. Uh, uh, marrying and marrying and so on, uh, that I think has been been resolved, and uh, the society operates uh, with the permission of bishops in different places in the world, and that too is another characteristic of communion, which has come about in the last uh, in the last decade. Here is a uh, question that I've run across in my years of rearing Catholic school children. Uh, Tom wants to know, can tithe money be used for a student's tuition? <laughs> well, um, no, boy. <laughs> it, you know, I, I, I actually, I think, I think a better way to word that question would be, the money you spend to send your child to the parish school, can that be considered part of your financial obligation as a parishioner to the parish? Well, speaking as your accountant or as an IRS agent, I think they would say, are you getting a benefit from it? And according to the extent to which you get a benefit, it's no longer considered a donation. That's not an unreasonable characterization. Um, the idea of, of tithing... Tax collector. <laughs> could be. Well, I was born on the Feast of St. Matthew, so <laughs> well, what you do you go. expect? You get it naturally. <laughs> I get it naturally. But uh, I... The church has a very loose notion of tithing. It's supporting the church according to one's means. And though the, the standard of the church, if you look in the older more theology texts, you know, we would say, well, that's a pitifully small, two and a half percent of what of what you're able to you know what you're able to get, to give from your total income or your income after your just debts are paid. So it's a very iffy standard. Uh, I think, obviously, to shoot for generosity, you're supporting the education not only of your children, but also 
you're uh, allowing for the employment of Catholic teachers and, and the, the staff and the other things that are done. So there is a donative dimension to that. So let your conscience be the guide on the tax dimension. And um, uh, remember that the church is looking for some generosity, not for you to become a, a pauper uh, in your giving. Uh, again, a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Friday. Not taking your phone calls today. Claudia writes in, I would never eternally punish my child. I don't understand how God could do that. I know I am not as merciful as God, but I don't understand. Can you explain? Well, um, the typical theological explanation is that the seriousness of an offense is dependent at least in part on the on the who the offended is uh, now even in civil law we take that seriously or even in classical ecclesiastical law you know the penalty for assaulting uh, the pope would be not different than and for a president uh, in the civil order would be different than for the ordinary person because there is a dignity, and so there's an, uh, you're assaulting not just the individual, you know, Jorge Bergoglio or Joseph Biden, but you're assaulting the office, and you're assaulting the dignity of the office, and indirectly the, the church and, or the nation. Uh, so there, that's an element of the moral calculus on that. In the case of God, where is the limit? to the assault on the dignity of God when you do something intentionally and maliciously uh, to attack God. You know, you take the worst case, Satan, who did that one time, uh, but in the nature, the angelic nature, you know, you're forever convinced your first decision was the right decision. There is no principle of change in the spiritual nature, and so the devil is forever, by his sin, uh, banished from the presence of God, his penalty is uh, is eternal uh, from the moment uh, from that sin. The human being, we have the principle of change in us. Our emotions, our other things, they mitigate our guilt. Our knowledge of whether what we're doing is wrong uh, can even eviscerate the guilt altogether. Uh, so all of these things are part of the human equation. But nonetheless, in the end, in terms of, of absolute justice, an offense against God has an, is an infinite offense. So that's, the, that's what is at work here. Uh, we are in the best of conditions compared to the fallen angels. They can never change. We can change at every moment, and hopefully we're changing at every moment a little bit for the better and not going the other way. If you're listening in Iowa today, your Catholic radio station needs to hear from you next week. Siouxland Catholic Radio is airing their Advent Pledge Drive next Tuesday through Thursday. So if you're listening in Sioux City, Storm Lake, or anywhere in northwest Iowa, please support your Catholic radio station. Again, a special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open, EWTN's Open Line Friday. Alex writes in, The three wise men gave three gifts to Jesus. Did they know that he was going to die and save the world from sin? Probably not. Um, you know, the one of the principles in dealing with the prophets of the Old Testament is they may not have understood the entire ramifications of what they what they prophesied, Isaiah, you know, a virgin shall conceive and bear a child. 
uh, the same word for an unmarried woman is used as for a virgin. And, you know, as, as we know, this, the historians of the scripture will tell us, uh, the Greek Jews translated that parthenos in the very word that means a virgin in the strict sense of that. Uh, in Hebrew, it has a little bit wider meaning. So we get, we get the Christological meaning from the fact that in the, not only the reality, of course, of the, of the incarnation in the Virgin Mary, but also because in using uh, the Old Testament, the church used the Greek, Greek version of Alexandria, the Septuagint. So language means something there, but it also doesn't mean that, it, it does also mean that rather that uh, Isaiah didn't necessarily know the full ramifications of what he was prophesying. And so this is similar in that case. Uh, anything that can be said uh, uh, regarding Christ or the Scripture prophetically uh, or, or in terms of, you know, a spiritual utter- utterance has a human meaning, as we spoke earlier about the, the authors of, of divine Revel- public revelation. They had a human motive which they wrote down, which we must have regard for. The church tells us we find out what was their motive, what was their human literary meaning. This is what the literal, literal meaning or the liter, literary meaning of the text means. On top of that, God can use those same words for some other intended purpose. And that has a general application. Special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Friday with Colin Donovan. Eileen wants to know, did the Catholic Church change the Sabbath from Saturday to Sunday? Uh, No, it celebrated God's resurrection uh, and not his creating act, but his redeeming and and the resurrection of Christ. So in that sense, the Church did what it had to do and what no doubt it was. We don't know. It's sort of maybe offline, if you will. Uh, This was probably told to the apostles. Uh, We know there are many, many things told to the apostles. It sort of makes, it does away with the idea that the apostles, if they didn't write stuff down, somehow it's not valid. They didn't write this down, although the record shows that they celebrated the breaking of the bread, which meant the Holy Eucharist, on Sunday. There's no effort to demonstrate that they continued the Jewish Sabbath. Rather, Paul shows that he celebrated the Sabbath as a Jew, also to convert them, but then he broke bread on Sunday with the Christian community. So this was a a very early thing, and I suspect that it was one of those offline things that Jesus spoke of to the apostles in which we see the reality of it expressed in the New Testament. We simply don't see Jesus saying, oh, and by the way, we will now, you will celebrate it Sunday rather than Saturday. So would it be fair to say the Sabbath hasn't changed, we're just not Jewish? The, I would say that's it, because what is the Sabbath is to make, make holy the day of the Lord. And in fact, in Latin, that's the name for Sunday. <laughs> there you go, Lunas. Eight, well, I'm not going to give the phone number out. See, I have to do it at least once per mailbag. <laughs> I have to give the phone number out. But this is a mailbag edition of Open Line Friday, so we're not taking your phone calls. You can, however, check out the wisdom of Father Benedict Groeschel Saturday morning, 1 a.m. Eastern time, right here on EWTN Radio. From the EWTN archives, the timeless wisdom of Father Benedict Groeschel blesses our listeners 
every single week on Saturday morning, 1 a.m. Eastern Time, the wisdom of Father Groeschel right here on EWTN Radio. Tom writes in, If God could give Mary the grace to be born without original sin, why not just do that for everybody? <laughs> well, it seems to be a thematic day because we <laughs> talked about how Israel had to be disposed Obviously, there was something in the background of Our Lady uh, with her parents and probably her grandparents and maybe even uh, several generations of pious, uh, pious Jews that disposed her to be completely open, to be a complete vessel for God's grace. Now, the mystics go beyond, of course, is, uh, having uh, have to affirm that since we've already affirmed it in the show here. Uh, private revelation goes beyond and suggests that even from the age of three years old, Our Lady had made this co- complete surrender of herself to God. And that's not surprising because when you see, there are examples of that um, among saints, recent saints. Padre Pio, I believe, was four uh, years old when he similarly did something like this and wanted to be uh, of a Franciscan. His, I think his motive might have been a little frivolous. I think he liked the uniform or something like that. But nonetheless, it was this desire to serve God, and I'll serve it in this way. And so Our Lady, at age three, making this, as the mystics have suggested, is entirely reasonable. Uh, when you see the generosity of children, as, as parents do, you know that uh, they can make that decision, and they can, they can stick to it, too. Now, that would be a rare individual humanly to, to do that. But with the grace of God, it's entirely possible. So, yes, I think we all have our differences temperamentally by disposition, by preparation, uh, socialization, if you will. Uh, and here was a unique person in history who, from all eternity, God had progressively disposed her lineage for this role and gave to her with her temperament her personality, and all of the gifts that he he lavished on her gave her the grace to accept the offering of himself at a very young age and be completely completely disposed to him. And here's a follow-up question from Nicholas. He said, does Mary's conception, free from original sin, grant her freedom from venial sins too? Uh, well, of course, uh, Mary's conception from venial, from uh, original sin, meant that she had all the graces that we all would have had if our first parents hadn't, you know, kicked, kicked that bucket down the road uh, by their own sin. So she had the grace, the potential that we all would have had in different historical circumstances. Um, and so her fidelity to those graces is what kept her from venial sin. Sure, granted that the grace, the plenitude of grace, as the angels said, you who are perfected in charity, the plenitude of grace there made her psychologically incapable of choosing to offend the Lord and made her, by grace, morally incapable of it. But her own disposition preceded that through her openness, and that disposition never wavered. So the fact that she is ever virgin, that she is uh, ever immaculate, and that she is never sinned, all of these things hang together, but 
are particular graces that uh, that she manifested by her cooperation, as we all must to all the graces God offers us. Email from Brian says, What authority is passed down by the apostles through apostolic succession? Well, the complete authority is the authority which uh, a bishop would hold, and that is the authority for the celebration of all the sacraments, including the holy orders, uh, the authority to, to govern, the authority to sanctify, uh, and the authority to teach. Uh, these things are mentioned at the Ascension. Go forth and teach all nations and to baptize them in the name of the Father and Son of the Holy Spirit. Here you have teaching, you have sanctification. And, of course, the, the background of that is he had chose these 12 and given them the keys, as Matthew 13 and Matthew chapter 18 show us. So the apostles were given the keys of authority, uh, analogous to the Davidic keys of the treasures of the, of the king, except these treasures are spiritual treasures, not the material tre- treasures such as the vizier of the king, King David, would have had. And so the apostles fully administered those, those treasures. The priests are set out as assistants to them, and with them is shared the power to, uh, to, to do the sacraments except to ordain to the episcopacy uh, or even to the priesthood, although they do cooperatively, uh, you see in ordinations, the priests also. Uh, but it is the act of the bishops in, in those cases that do that accomplish the ordaining. But they, to their extent of their, their priestly ministry, uh, contribute to that by their participation. Uh, so that's why we think of the priests as the helpers of the bishops. And they share in those apostolic powers according to that extent which the church has uh, determined come with that particular particular sacramental order. Again, a special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Friday, so no phone calls today, please. Norm writes in, how old was Jesus when the Magi arrived in Bethlehem, and why did Mary and Joseph not return to Nazareth yet? Yeah, I think that's a question of historical dispute. Uh, I think the best answer is that he may have been as old as two years, but we don't, you know, we don't know that. Uh, that would account for probably why Herod slew children up to that age, that he knew that the birth had happened some time before. It was Christmas night, Colin. I've watched the Peanuts special. <laughs> <laughs> Well, uh, yes, I guess if you wish to take that line, that's a, that's a, that's a valid opinion. So, uh, but the likely opinion is that sometime between his birth and his second, uh, his second anniversary uh, of birth. That's plausible. Historically, we don't know with any certainty. As for returning, we know it was the persecution of Herod that caused them to flee to Egypt, and it was the you know, the end of that reign, which allowed them to return and go to their, uh, where Joseph had been working in Nazareth. Um, Alice writes in, in the Eucharist, are the accidents of bread and wine attached to Christ's substance or absent of it? Uh, They are signs, and the church doesn't get more definite with that. People try to turn them into physical realities, uh, they are there for uh, our benefit, 
Um, you know, we say that that the substance is the bread is changed into the body of Christ, the substance of the wine. So they're not adhering in their original substance. Uh, they are not adhering in Christ, but they are more or less by a perpetual miracle retained in that state of accident, the whiteness, the, the, the appearances, the look, and even the taste, uh, because it's the will of God that we have faith in this truth and that it doesn't need to be demonstrated to us every time we receive Holy Communion. So we put our faith in the, the words of Christ and the church has been fairly sparse in defining it much more than the Council of Trent did, uh, that by a sacramental mode, Christ is present, and that the accidents of, uh, of the bread and the wine remain after the substance has been changed into the body and blood of Christ. Again, a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Friday. So we're not going to be taking your phone calls um, today um and we're about to the end of the road here colin on this very special mailbag edition how has your first week of advent been well it's going pretty good i mean we've had uh it's been a wonderful week uh although by the time our listeners hear this they won't be able to see but you are liturgically correct in your attire today uh purple shirt on well, I was uh, that the God's providence provided that because uh, I was uh, Mike gave me the the day and the time of the mailbag <laughs> after I'd put the shirt on and come to work. So, <laughs> so Spirit. God provides, the Lord provides, and we have to be confident of that. That's part of Advent, isn't it? It is, and it's always uh, you know He always does a better job than we do of, of orchestrating. Pretty much, He's things. a much better planner. Yep, Man yep. proposes, God disposes, as the old saying goes. <laughs> there you go. Well, thanks, as always, for being so gracious with your time. And uh, we'll be back again live next week. We will so indeed. So they can send their slings and arrows in real time. That's right. To a professional theologian. <laughs> that brings this episode to a close. On behalf of our host, Colin Donovan, our producer, Michael McCall, I'm Jack Williams. Thanks so much for tuning in to this mailbag edition of Open Line Friday. Have a great weekend and God bless.